all comments and observations in this podcast are made in a personal capacity and we're expressing personal views by way of legal commentary. While every effort is made to ensure that the contents of each episode are accurate, none of the contents of any episode of Professionally Embarrassing are intended to be a substitute for legal advice. No liability is accepted for any error or omission within any episode. to Professionally Embarrassing, your fortnightly family law podcast hosted by me, Malika, and me, Maddie. Hello everyone, welcome back to season two of Professionally Embarrassing. Malvika and I were just saying it feels like we've never been away, but we're very happy to be back. Uh, Both of us have enjoyed our summers. Malvika, what have you been up to in the gap? I've been working. I've been working a lot. I mean, it's quite exciting. I finished the manuscript for my book that I'm doing with my friend Rebecca. That's good. I'm sure we'll plug that on the podcast at some point. It's got the extremely, extremely catchy title, A Practical Guide to Practice Direction 12J in Private Law Children Proceedings, which I'm sure everyone will want to read and will be picking up as soon as it lands on bookshelves. That's what I've been doing. Honestly, I've been working more than I've worked all year. What about you? Yes, I've been working. I have been enjoying the weather. I'm always much happier when it's sunny. So I'm very glad that we've had some sun in the UK. But yeah, same old, same old, really. Like I said, it feels like we've never been away. A couple of exciting things from our end. Obviously, the first is, which is insane, is that we have been nominated for a Family Law Award for Family Law Commentator of the Year. We found out at the end of the summer and it was a huge shock and also a real privilege and honour to have been nominated for that award. We're shortlisted alongside some other big names in family law. Yeah, I think we're a big name in family law now, Matty, but they're really big names in family law. So it's such an enormous privilege to even have our names listed next to them, our sad little lockdown podcast. Well done, us. Yeah, we're very, very proud and slightly overwhelmed. And to be honest with you, the fact we've been shortlisted is more than enough. We are kicking off season two with a dive into something that we haven't actually looked at before, which is parental alienation. And we're dedicating the whole of the What Did You See on Bailey segment of today's podcast to parental alienation and a particular set of cases that came out in July of this year that is four judgments about one family. I am going to lead us in with the background of what happened. Before I do that, there's a couple of things that Malvika and I want to say about parental alienation. The first is that we know that it is a very thorny, very emotional and very difficult topic for some people. So if it's something that you think you might find distressing, then fair warning, we are going to be discussing the impact of parental alienation on fairly young children. There's also a warning from my end about the detail to which the judgment goes into the impact on the children of the psychological and emotional harm that they've suffered. In cases involving physical or sexual harm, you often don't get a huge amount of detail, thankfully. But in this case, there is a huge amount of detail about the impact on these children and the risks to these children. So if that is something that you might find distressing, then again, may not be the episode for you. In relation to parental alienation, as I say, it's a very emotional topic. And I want to make it very clear at the start of the show that we are not hoping to solve the issue of parental alienation. We are not looking to dive into the rabbit hole of what causes alienation across the board or how alienation can be solved or even 
the different views that people have about the definition of alienation and when it comes up. We are looking very specifically at these cases as a freestanding judgment, and we are looking at the remedies that the court provides for these children and this family in the context of significant psychological harm. That is the focus that we will be taking. Malvika, anything to add to that? Yeah, I'm not going to lie. I'm slightly terrified about this episode. I think we've managed pretty well to have gotten this far without touching on parental alienation at all. And I think that was a very conscious decision by Maddie and me, because it is a very hot topic in family law, but it is very contentious, very polarizing. It sparks very strong opinions. And I'm quite scared of wading into this particular corner of the internet. As an example, some of my colleagues at the Transparency Project recently tweeted a link to an article by Jenny Birchall and Shazia Chowdhury. And the article, which you know is going to be controversial because it's entitled, I was punished for telling the truth how allegations of parental alienation are used to silence, sideline and disempower survivors of domestic abuse in family law proceedings. So the Transparency Project just tweeted a link to that article. They didn't endorse it, they didn't comment on it, but received a huge, enormous amount of vitriol for simply tweeting a link to that article. I wanted to quote from the blog post that they wrote off the back of that incident, because I think that it would be helpful for listeners to bear in mind what they say there as we go through this episode, because we will inevitably, I'm sure, refer to sources that you don't agree with, indeed we may not agree with, but we're doing this podcast in the spirit of open debate, of healthy debate, and we shouldn't feel that we should be worried about, you know, vitriol coming our way on the Twitterverse because of analysing uh, parental alienation judgment. So what the Transparency Project wrote in that blog was, whilst our tweet contained no comment on its contents, we received numerous vitriolic and highly critical responses, suggesting that by merely sharing a link to the article, we were in some way taking sides or aligning ourselves inappropriately with a view on the topic and that such alignment was inappropriate. We reject that. And they go on to say there is and should be space for respectful scepticism, inquiry and challenge of those who offer expertise and opinion on either side of this polarized area. There should also be room for people to shift positions or acknowledge complexity over time as they become more informed. So that is what we're going to try and achieve on this episode, which is that space for respectful skepticism, inquiry and challenge. So please bear that in mind as we analyze these particular judgments. Well, without further ado, the Cases, as I say, there are four judgments. I'm going to take you through the first two, and Marvel is going to bring us home with the last two. The first one came out in November of 2020, and it is the main body, substantive body of the judgment involving this family. It gives you all of the facts and the background. So the case is called Re A and B, brackets parental alienation number one, and it is before Mr. Justice Kean in the High Court. And it involves two children, A and B. A is a girl who is 14 at the time of the publishment of this judgment, and B is a boy who is 11 at the time of the publishment of this judgment. Both of these children are highly educated and their parents are very, very wealthy. They were born in the USA, but they hold American, Russian and British citizenship. They are children of the world, as it were, and have extensively travelled in their younger years. The father was born in Russia. The mother is Armenian. 
The mother moved to Moscow to work in 2001, and in 2005, the parties married in Moscow. In May 2012, the parties separated, so after some seven years of marriage, having moved to the UK in September 2006. So the children are living in the UK following separation from their parents. There was then, in 2015, following an element of litigation in relation to leave to remove, where the mother sought for the children to live in Russia, which was opposed by the father, the court imposed a shared care agreement between the parents such that both children were spending time with both parents equally on a shared care basis. That was working for some time. And in March 2015, there were then a series of allegations made by the mother against the father, which involved both the police and the local authority. They were obviously serious allegations. We don't know what they were. Ultimately, after a period of investigation, no action was taken by the Crown Prosecution Service or the local authority. Unfortunately, in November 2018, further allegations were made by the mother against the father in relation to the children. And in early November 2018, the mother made an application to vary the order of the court from 2014, which set out the shared care arrangement. So up until this point, the children had been spending equal time with both parents. In 2018, the mother makes an application to suspend the shared care arrangements on the basis of the allegations that she makes. Those applications by the mother were essentially refused. However, shortly thereafter, child B, the younger boy, starts refusing to go to his father's house and starts refusing to engage in contact. Contact begins to fail quite drastically. And by February 2019, the parties were back in court because the mother had made an application for a passport for the children and the father opposed it on the basis that the mother may remove the children to Russia, given that the children were no longer engaging fully in contact. So the case comes before the court substantively in March 2019 in front of uh, Mr Justice Kean, following a number of allegations over a number of years and now two children who are substantively not engaging in contact with their father. The parties in March 2019 apply for the instruction of a child psychiatrist. And I want to pause there because this is a tool, and I will refer to them as tools throughout, that the court can use when faced with the issue of parental alienation. So it's quite clear that these children are refusing to spend time with their father at this point. I think it's written into the judgment. It's not specifically said, but it's written in that that is due to some negative views about their father and then refusing to engage rather than any safeguarding issues. So the court decides that they need a child psychiatrist to speak to the children to better understand why these children are refusing to engage in contact. In April, the mother seeks for the discharge of the passport order because she says, I'm no longer a flight risk. I'm not going to take the children to Russia. I don't want the passports to be kept by the court anymore. That application was not successful. The passport order remained in place. There were then further directions hearings and ultimately the instruction of the expert who was Dr. Butler at the beginning, child psychiatrist Dr. Butler. That work carried on and the report was filed on the 10th of June 2019. On the 12th of June, the parties decided that further help was required on the basis that they needed further information about the children. Again, it's not set out in the judgment exactly what Dr. Butler's report says about what gaps there were. We'll come back to that later, but the parties take the decision that they need a bit more information about the children and the children's welfare. They instruct Dr. Breyer, who is a well-renowned psychologist in the field of parental alienation, to prepare a report. She does so jointly with Miss Karen Woodall, who features very heavily in the judgments from here on out. They together, Dr. Breyer and Miss Woodall, 
file several reports throughout the proceedings. The proposed way forward by all of the experts by about July of 2019, so about four months, five months after contact starts to fail, is that there will be a programme of work, psychological direct work with the children, to rectify the alienation and to seek to ensure that the children have a relationship with their father. It was envisaged at the time that that work would last about six months. In the end, it lasts for 15 months. And that work has been ongoing for a period of time since 2019 and is carrying on essentially until the end of the judgments that we're going to discuss. There's then a slightly odd element to the case that I want to talk about because it does come up later. And I think Malvika will mention it, that the father has married again to a woman called Mrs. A in the judgment, and they are seeking to move in London to Marlebone. The father sends his intended move to the mother and says, I'm going to move house, by the way. This is where contact will now be because I'm moving house. Ahead of that move, the mother also moves to Marlebone within walking distance of the father's house. So you've got both parents who are essentially at war at this point and the children who are very upset and distressed by the idea of spending time with their father, living a couple of minutes away from each other in the same area of London. The court then looks at, in the substantive first judgment, the impact of the alienation on the children. And as I say, it's not, it's not written specifically in the judgment, but it's assumed that there is significant alienation throughout this judgment, which is an element of it that's slightly difficult for us to get into because we don't know exactly what happened. But ultimately, the children are refusing to spend time with their father. Dr. Butler, in the first report, says that she is concerned that both children are presenting as highly anxious and perhaps have symptoms of depressive disorders. She says that the boy, particularly, has a depressive disorder and has struggled to keep up with what his mother needs. The girl has a history of essentially being completely overly involved with her parents' separation from very early on. So what Dr. Butler says is that the girl who is 14 is now presenting with evidence of disordered attachment development and increased risk of mental health problems. She is intellectually an able child and is socially able. However, she is what Dr. Butler calls pseudo mature, which means that she presents as if an adult and talks about general day-to-day things in an adult-like manner, acts as if she is equal to the adults in her life. And this strategy has meant that her emotional needs have not been consistently met by her caregivers. In relation to the boy, child B, Dr. Butler says that she is most concerned about him. In her opinion, he is presenting with disordered attachment development and depressive disorder and is currently the centre of an extremely conflictual parental separation and subject to ongoing court proceedings. She says that child B is also presenting with a compulsive compliant compulsive caregiving attachment strategy, which I will come on to. At the moment, essentially, in order for his emotional needs to be met, this little boy has to reject his father because that is what is required of him by his sister and his mother in order to please his current caregivers, which is his mother and his sister. Dr. Butler says he's really struggling with that task and therefore the girl, the older girl, has had to deal with a lot of issues around her sibling relationship and her parental relationship. So between the two of them, they're really struggling. The impact of this parental alienation is really, really significant and then they're not well kids. She goes on to say that the boy has an insecure attachment relationship to both his parents. He sees his sister as a parental figure, but she also makes him very anxious. He sees no possibility for change in his father, which is also his sister's position. He did not think that anything could happen that means he could forgive his father. And he became increasingly disfluent when speaking to Dr. Butler. So he's, he's literally degenerating in front of the psychiatrist's eyes when she's speaking to him. 
She's deeply concerned about his mental health and there is evidence of depressive disorder in both children. He's acting out at school and essentially his behaviour, the younger boy, is, is becoming increasingly difficult to manage. She goes on to say in a warning, this is not very nice to hear, but she says, in summary, I think this boy is depressed. I think there is a risk he wishes he was dead. In my opinion, this boy is really missing his father, but feels hopeless and helpless that he can change. The evidence from meeting child A, the girl, last week is that the children remain highly anxious and the meeting was controlled entirely by their mother. In my opinion, it was not a genuine attempt on her part to help to repair the situation and it will not help the children to progress on the basis that they need to make things work. So this is an appalling situation. Both children are exhibiting very significant psychiatric, psychological stress as a result of the conflict between their parents. And the mother is doing essentially nothing to assist the children move forward and to get to a place where they can spend time with their father. Both the experts, Dr. Bryan, Miss Woodle and Dr. Butler, agree that there is a very short period of time in which any help to these children can be offered because there will come a point, practitioners will know this, where it simply becomes irreparable. There's nothing more the court can do, either because the children are too old or because all avenues of help have been exhausted and there's nothing further that can be done to help this relationship. So they say we've got a, a really key period of time here, a short window of opportunity to repair these children's relationships with their father before their life overtakes it and they simply can't do it while they're children. So these experts prepare their reports. They do this work over a very long period of time. As I said, it's meant to take six months. It takes 15 months. And so this judgment, the first one, November 2020, is after a culmination of a huge amount of work from Dr. Butler, Dr. Breyer and Miss Woodall over the course of some 15 months with both children. And they essentially come to the court at this hearing with their final reports and their final recommendations. And they essentially say, we don't know what we're going to do. They have no clue how to fix this situation. That's not fair. Of course, they have lots of ideas how to fix the situation, but they don't know which one is going to work and they don't know which one is going to cause the children to irreparably sever from their father, essentially forever. So in their final report, Dr. Brian and Miss Woodall, who've done this work over this time, they put forward five options for the court to consider, but they could not come to a clear recommendation. So what they say is they've extended the trial phase, that is the period of work, in the hope of being able to withdraw gently and allow the family to resume its normal way of working. They wanted to confidently recommend a permanent 50-50 care arrangement for this family. But whilst matters are much improved with the children in position of a more regulated relationship with their father, the dynamics remain the risks of regression back to rejection of the father are still unacceptably high, so that it has not been possible to withdraw or make a firm recommendation. So essentially what they're saying is after 15 months, while things are better in terms of the children's views of their father and they're spending a bit more time with him, there's a real risk that anything can set these children back so far that we're back to where we started 15 months ago. And of course, the court doesn't have that kind of time and the children don't have that kind of time to repair that relationship. So they say that their view now is after 15 months of involvement is that ongoing proceedings are unhelpful for these children who need a decision on a more permanent arrangement to support them through the difficult teenage years. They say we therefore respectfully set out our thinking in relation to the benefits and risks of each strategy as we see it, leaving the court to decide on balance which one is likely to be most sustainable and therefore in the children's best interests. They go on to observe that the younger boy, child B's mental health last year was so significant that if he is deteriorating again, if his mental health is allowed to deteriorate again, there will be some really serious consequences in terms of his ongoing psychological and physical health, even after all this time, even after this period of intense work. And whilst the therapeutic support has been helpful, 
the therapeutic support would need to continue in order for these children to basically repair the damage that has been done by their mother. There was then an incident. So that was their view a couple of weeks before the hearing. There was then an incident on the 6th of October 2020 where child B is left in his father's home and leaves the home carrying a kitchen knife. And all parties are obviously extremely concerned about this incident. And surprisingly, the mother handles this incident exceptionally well. She speaks with the child, meets him, persuades him to return to his father's house and takes obviously the knife off of him and allows him to return back to his father's house safely. And that incident becomes extremely important because the mother says, you can see from that incident that I have changed. I regret my actions. I am no longer interested in alienating these children any further. And I want them to have a good relationship with their father. You can trust me, essentially. And what the experts say is that, and this is quite an interesting aspect of the case, is that the mother in this case has such a significant psychological profile that she is unlikely to ever be able to permanently change her position in terms of her views about the father and her care of the children. So whilst that incident on the 6th of October demonstrated a clear ability to handle crises with the children when they happen and rejection of the father and, and difficult incidents, what the experts say is that is one incident in a history of very poor management by the mother. And essentially it's too little too late because what they say, and this is a paragraph 27 of the judgment, I'm going to read quite a lot of it, so I apologize for that, but I think it's, it's important. The experts say that the mother has worked hard and is no longer an active negative influence, but in many ways, her responses are not necessarily very different to what was seen in 2018. That is the period of significant alienation. The mother wants to do the right thing, but she needs to be seen to be doing so. As such, can do this very well, taking advice in the moment from others and acting on it. But we had been hoping that she would have developed her own repertoire a little further. In using not only myself, Miss Woodle, or her own therapist, she is not developing, learning, or generalizing sufficiently. This is the case despite repeated attempts to get her to focus on absorbing principles rather than rules, to enable her to support the whole of the situation and to become more natural and emotionally congruent rather than needing to be scripted. The mother's strategy in seeking and implementing advice as faithfully as possible to ensure she avoids errors may provide sensible and helpful in the moment responses but also results in splitting the larger support team around her to include those without a holistic view of the family dynamics. As such, the mother unwittingly worsened the problem of inconsistency already produced by her own changing moods or priorities, rather than working from core principles. Essentially, in layman's terms, understanding the mother's struggle here may be helped by a reminder of her psychological profile. I have never believed the mother was consciously deceiving, but it is hard for those with histrionic features like her to admit their mistakes. More preoccupied with the impression they make than their actions, they will typically selectively filter, finding justifications for their own behavior, literally forgetting what they do, not want to know or say things which are not true without actually being aware of it. That is not in the sense of awkwardness of lying or a bad conscience because they're not generally sincere in the moment and believe their own accounts. They are simply unpredictable and changeable, tending to repress matters which contradict their self-perception, current mood, attitude or values, marshalling narratives to suit the moment. I'm just going to pause there. Malika, what do you think about that? It's terrifying, isn't it? Because this isn't a case of a mother who 
knows what she's doing, consciously knows that she is alienating these children, or maybe she knows on some subconscious level. But really, the issue is that it's just not in her to stop behaving that way. Because if you know what you're doing, then you can identify the problem, you can work towards improving your behavior as you move forward. But if it's something that is shaped by your psychological profile, is inherent in the way that you manage situations and manage your emotions, how do you even begin to overcome that? And that's a really, really scary thing for these children. Yeah, and I think it's really put into context when they talk about this incident on the 6th of October. So the experts say, The mother's behaviour on the night of the 6th of October was outstanding in getting the boy home, as was her participation in the repair in my consulting rooms, even if she omitted to tell anyone that she had failed to proactively inform the father and the daughter of the son's distressed texts and calls to her that night before he ran out. However, having responded to the crisis, when it died down, she reframed her narrative with several threats implicating the father as failing to engage in sensible actions typically but not exclusively suggested by her, to prevent the incident, thereby implicating the father and exonerating herself. So whilst she's trying her best to fix these things on a case-by-case basis, she's just falling back into the same patterns every time she gets to a stable position with the children. And essentially what the experts are saying is, that is such a dangerous and damaging psychological profile that there is no space for change. And this woman is not going to be able to change sufficiently to allow her to care for these children in a supportive way. So taking all of that together, the judge thinks about her view, sorry, thinks about his view of the evidence. And he looks at what the experts are saying about the mother. He looks at what the experts are saying about the real risk to these children. And Dr. Breyer says in her evidence to the judge that she agreed with Dr. Butler's assessment and with her prognosis in relation to the mother's psychological profile. Dr. Breyer describes in some detail the potential adverse consequences for both children if they continue to suffer parental alienation or splitting, it's referred to as splitting in this case, which I think is a helpful phrase, or splitting from their father, both children would be at real risk of a failure to develop a sense of self. They may develop depression, lack of trust, a great sense of shame, and an inability to secure healthy future relationships. These adverse consequences are intergenerational, and both the daughter and the son could be at risk of suffering alienation issues with any children that they may have. They are at risk of physical and emotional harm, which would be dangerous for them. They may each engage in forms of self-harm and be unable to self-regulate their emotions. So grave were the risks of harm to the children, as described by Dr. Breyer, that the father was visibly distressed as she gave this evidence. So it's tough stuff. Things have got really, really bad. And these children are really facing a significant risk. What the court has to do is make a decision about the five options that are offered by the experts. And the five options that are offered are these. Number one is a full transfer to the father's care with only supervised or monitored contact with the mother. Number two is shared care on an 80-20 basis in favour of the father. So 80% of time the father, 20% of time the mother. Number three is a 70-30 basis, again, to the father. Number four is a 65-35 basis. Or number five is a 50-50 basis percentages are starting to get a bit arbitrary yeah it's essentially is it number one is the far end of the spectrum where they're with dad all the time and they have supervised contact with their mum two three and four are kind of iterations of a bit of time spent with mum most time spent with dad number five is 50 50 back to the status quo as it was in 2018 before things went wrong and the judge has to look at all of these things and make a decision about what is the right thing to do and what the judge says is this 
I do not consider that any of these options meet the welfare best interests of the children. I have already explained why I consider the present 50-50 shared care is neither in the welfare best interests of the children, nor is it sustainable. I acknowledge that it is agreed that if the children were asked for their views, it is likely they would prefer the current 50-50 shared arrangement to continue. It has to be borne in mind, however, that although the children love their mother and aligned with her, she has A, caused and is causing them emotional and psychological harm by alienating or splitting the children from their father, and B, they remain very vulnerable to her changes of mood and behaviour, most especially the daughter. I accept that all five options carry risks of one sort or another for the children. The risks which concern me the greatest are these. Number one, the daughter and or the son will once again be alienated or split from their father with the consequence that it will not be possible to repair the relationship between them. Or B, the adverse consequences of the alienation from their father would render one or both of them beyond the control of either parent and or results in the decision that one or both of them in their welfare best interest be placed in foster care. And that is what the experts said. They said if these children split again, if they're with their dad and something happens and they are, they're back to regressing to their alienation behaviours, they may have to be removed from both parents because they will simply become unmanageable. The father can't manage them and the mother has already subjected them to such significant harm that she can't possibly be trusted to care for them on a full-time basis anyway. So the court is really in a rock and a hard place and the judge says that he agrees with Dr. Bry that an outcome, that is foster care, of such a nature would be a disaster for these bright and intelligent children. I therefore have to find a solution, says the judge, to this family's crisis, which seeks to achieve a balance between the following competing factors. A, one or other of the children rejecting the very limited contact with their mother and voting with their feet and leaving their father's care. And B, contact with the mother taking place at such a frequency and for such a prolonged period that the mother's malign influence results in the children once again being alienated. That's the tension, isn't it? That's, that's the tension in alienation cases, is they've got to spend some time with the person who alienated them because if they don't, they will simply go straight back to her 100%. But they may spend so much time with her that the alienation continues and is allowed to continue. So it's a really difficult, essentially mathematical question of how much time can the children spend with this person without this risk rearing its head again and without this alienation rearing its head again. And I think that is such a difficult balance. What the judge ultimately says is that the children are going to live with their dad, that for the first month of living with their dad, they will have no contact with their mother at all. and then after a month, if the mother has accepted the view of the court and has accepted the judgment as it is, and Miss Woodall, the psychologist who remains on the scene, considers it to be in their interest, there may be a telephone call between the children supervised by Miss Woodall. And if appropriate, a telephone call at Christmas, bear in mind this is November 2020. He says after this period of one month and assuming all has gone well, the mother should have supervised contact, preferably supervised by Miss Woodall, once every three weeks for a period of four hours. After a further period of three months, the children shall have stay in contact with the mother once every three weeks from a Friday to a Sunday. And then they will have stay in contact in the holidays thereafter, one week at Christmas, one week at Easter, and two weeks on two separate occasions during the summer holiday. The judge goes on to say that the mother will be prohibited from removing the children from England and Wales. Whilst it is accepted that the mother may now present a low, modest flight risk of removing the children, the judge agrees with the father's assertion that despite the mother's connection to this country, she's lived in the UK obviously for a very long time, her psychological profile may cause her to act in the moment and remove the children to Russia. And of course, as we all know, getting children back from Russia, if they've been removed, is essentially impossible. So that's the danger of that. The judge says the child arrangements order will be made in the terms I've set out above. 
either party will have liberty to apply for urgent directions if anything goes wrong. I'm completely satisfied that the child arrangements orders detailed by me above meet the needs of the children and most likely is the one which enables them to overcome the emotional and psychological harm which they have suffered and are suffering at the hands of their mother. What do you think? I know that there are, and we've alluded to it at the beginning of this episode, there are corners of this debate who seek to argue that parental alienation isn't a thing, that parental alienation is effectively a cloak for domestic abuse. You know, if one parent alleges domestic abuse, the other parent goes, I wasn't abusive, they're just alienating me from the child. And that may well be true in some cases, but I think what this judgment makes really clear is that parental alienation is a thing. It is emotionally harmful to children. It does have extremely profound consequences for children's development. What I will say, I confess, and I don't know what your views are on this, Matthew, I'm not actually a big fan of the term parental alienation, not because, as I say, I I think it's a myth or anything like that. I'm fully aware that there are very sad cases like this one where children are either consciously or inadvertently encouraged, manipulated or influenced to reject the other parent. But maybe because in in my experience, I find that the term parental alienation has been increasingly appropriated and instrumentalized and used casually in cases where the behavior that's being referred to just does not amount to that level of seriousness. So, and I also think it's become very politically loaded. So I wonder that maybe that's why I have this kind of instinctive recoiling um, whenever anyone uses the term parental alienation. I prefer to call it what it is, uh, you know, a parent who's intractably hostile to contact or a child who, as I said, is being encouraged, manipulated or influenced to reject the other parent. I think it's more straightforward to say something like that. I mean, it may be because I'm not au fait with the scientific evidence base for parental alienation as a phenomenon that I feel uncomfortable wielding what seems like a pseudo-medical term when I don't fully understand the implications. It may be that as I become more educated, I feel more comfortable using the term, but that's how I am with the term parental alienation itself. But in terms of what it actually, what the behavior that it describes, you know, this case is a prime example of of the extremely damaging consequences that that sort of behavior from one parent can have on the, the relationship of the other parent with the children. Yes, and the real difficulty with this judgment, and I do want to apologise for it, is that there's no detail, and this is not a criticism, obviously, of the judgment. I imagine all parties were fully aware of the detail at the time the judgment was published, but there's no detail about what happened between the shared care arrangement starting and the breakdown of contact, ultimately getting to a point where both children have quite significant mental health problems. There's no detail about what was tried, why they refused to go to contact, what kind of contact was tried, whether it was because mum didn't take them, whether it was because they refused to go in, whether it was because they were kicking and screaming. You know, it's it's actually really hard to know what the problem was. And I think that does make this case slightly more difficult for lay people to read and, and make sense of, because all you're seeing is, well, the children didn't want to go to contact and now the children are being removed from their mother. And that's obviously not what happened I'm I'm pretty confident in saying I don't think that's what happened in my experience that would be very rare but something terrible has happened to these children such that their psychiatric and psychological welfare is so damaged and they are so damaged that they require 15 months of therapy to correct this position and even then they remain extremely vulnerable to splitting from their father so it's not helpful that the case doesn't set that out but The reason I wanted to talk about this one as opposed to other parental alienation cases is that it does make it so clear, as you say, the impact of this behaviour. It doesn't matter what the behaviour is. The point is that if you 
unfairly or inappropriately or are intractable, hostile, whatever the term is, to prevent, you prevent the relationship between a parent and the children unfairly for no reason, no good reason. This is what can happen. It is as significant as physical harm, as sexual harm, as all of the things that we normally discuss on this podcast. And I think that's quite telling. That's quite rare that you see that set out in such detail and in such a graphic way in terms of the impact this has had on the children. It's it's a very sad case. And I think it does need to be read in full because I've really skimmed most of it. And there are bits in there about how much the father had to do to make these children trust him again and how much the mother is simply not able, be it psychologically or consciously, simply not able to see or promote this relationship in any real way. So it's it's very sad. But what we do know from the judgment is that mother made allegations against the father of domestic abuse and of child abuse of the children, completely unparticularized, as you say, which isn't totally helpful. But maybe that's a conscious decision because the mother later admits that she made it all up. Yes, that's a really important part that I should have said, actually. She says to the judge, I make up stories in my head and I wrote them down in my witness statement. So she has said to the court, I made these allegations up because I was frightened about what would happen to the children. Now, that's fairly understandable. You know, there are lots of reasons why people lie, as we know, and being scared about the welfare of your children, I think is a legitimate one. That being said, those allegations are not true. And it's very important that people listening to this don't think that we are saying, this is a mother who was subjected to terrible abuse and then ultimately had her children removed because she couldn't get over the fact that this man had been abusive. That's not this case. It may be other cases, it may not. But it's not this case. This case very specifically says this mother accepted and has said again and again, I made that up. Those allegations were lies and I did it because I didn't want the children to see him. And I think that's a very important element of this case. Very important. Right. Should we go to judgment number two? Because when Maddie yes. says you need to read this in its entirety, what she means is you need to read all four judgments that have been spawned out of this particular case. Yes, unfortunately, it doesn't end there. Surprise, surprise. And I, actually, again, this is why I think this is a really important case, because a lot of judgments you see on parental alienation, they say, this is what the court's going to do, go off and do it. And we have no idea what happened after that judgment was finished. So re A and B parental alienation number two comes out 24th of February 2021. And this is an update from the court following a number of applications made by the mother in the same set of proceedings. So The judge says, reminds himself that as part of the process of dealing with the parental alienation, he had set out a roadmap of contact back in November, which could restart in ideal circumstances, the relationship between the children and the mother following a period of time spent with the father. The judge says, it was me who told the children the outcome of the case. So it was Mr. Justice Keehan sat the children down and said to them what he had decided he was going to do. So you are going to live with your father and you're not going to see your mother for a month. He says very diplomatically, the children did not take this news well. Most regrettably, the day after, on the 26th of November, in the evening, both children left their father's home and went to a home of a friend of the mother. It became necessary, unfortunately, to obtain the assistance of the Metropolitan Police to return the children to their father. The children were returned, but it was obviously very difficult for the children, for the father and for the father's wife. Regrettably, again, a few days later, on the 2nd of December, so this is only about two weeks after Mr Justice Keane's original decision was made, The children leave their father's home again, and on this occasion they go to the home of their former tutor. 
For reasons that Mr Justice Kean does not elaborate on, the tutor has made contact with the emergency duty team of Westminster City Council and has reported the children as, you know, being waifs and strays, essentially. Mr Justice Kean is notified in the late hours of the 2nd of December and made a without notice collection order, which again meant that the police went and collected the children from the house again. And I understand that that collection was significantly distressing for all parties involved. And anyone who's seen Louise Tickle's documentary about these removals will know how distressing that incident may have been. I, I'm, that's speculation. I don't know what happened, but I can imagine from what Mr. Justice Kean says that that was a very difficult time for the children. So we're two weeks later. The children are leaving their father's house quite routinely and going fleeing essentially to family members and, and friends of family not settling very well. So Mr Justice Kean lists the matter on the 8th of December in light of the events of the last few days and suspends his roadmap and orders the matter to be listed before him in January. So on the 8th of December, he says, look, everyone just down tools. We need to have a re-evaluation. After Christmas, we'll think about what's happening. So 11th of January, the mother comes back to court and starts making significant criticisms of Miss Woodall, who, bear in mind, has been treating these children now since March 2018. So nearly two years by the time this judgment is written and is heavily involved in the care and management of the children. The mother starts making significant criticisms of Miss Woodall. She also says that the children were not joined as parties in this set of proceedings, which is a criticism as well. The mother is criticising the court for that. And I want to pause there as well, because I think one of the tools that is also available to the court in cases of marginalisation, alienation, whatever we want to call it, implacable hostility, is the use of guardian. Often courts will appoint a third party. It's legally the children, but it's obviously not the children coming to court themselves. It's the appointment of a professional to act in their interests. That's often done, I think, in the lower courts to try and neutrally and independently represent the children's wishes and feelings. And it's often a very effective tool for whatever reason in this case, which is obviously ongoing for a long time, that wasn't done. And what the mother says is it should have been done because the children's wishes and feelings are not being independently and neutrally presented. She also says, I'm very concerned about Miss Woodall. She's not doing very good work and she is essentially being difficult and biased and isn't helping me with the children. There's then an excellent paragraph, uh, paragraph nine of number two, where Mr Justice Keane says, quite extraordinarily and out with my experience, the mother disclosed a videotape taken of a therapeutic session she has had with Miss Woodall to her solicitors. Equally extraordinarily, those solicitors then sought to engage in correspondence with Miss Woodall about the contents of a confidential therapy session. Just going to let that sink in. Criticisms were then made by the mother of Miss Woodall in terms of what was termed to be the unfair criticisms that she was making of the mother. This was then dealt with in correspondence. However, today the mother made a complaint that she has been denied and never had the opportunity to challenge Miss Woodall about her report and about various criticisms that it made of her. What today became, as was presaged by the position statement filed on behalf of the mother, was a wholesale onslaught against the professionalism, expertise and objectivity of Miss Woodall. Again, the psychologist who's been treating this family for two years. Kean says, I deprecate in the strongest possible terms that that action was taken. I consider the criticism that are made of Miss Woodall's professionalism, expertise and objectivity to be totally without merit whatsoever. And I have, I should make it plain for the avoidance of doubt, complete confidence in Miss Woodall. She has worked unbelievably hard over the course of the last three months. She has had experience of working with this family for over 15 months of assisting the children to settle with their father and to start repairing the emotional damage that the mother did to them. So the mother comes to court and says, essentially, I'm not happy with how this 
therapy is progressing and I think a guardian should be appointed. And I also want disclosure of the Westminster City Council records that were made when the children fled to the tutor's house. So stacks of applications made by mum for various different things. Mr. Justice Keane says, paragraph 15, the view that I have formed of the mother and her motives is reinforced by the applicants' applications that were pursued at the hearing today. Of somewhat minor importance are two applications for disclosure of material relating to the Metropolitan Police and Westminster City Council. There is no live issue, as far as I'm concerned, before this court to which that disclosure would or could be relevant. It is once again a litigation tactic that has no regard at all to the welfare best interests of these two children, and both applications are dismissed. Of greater concern is the heavily pressed argument that the children should be granted party status to be represented by a guardian. And notwithstanding the widespread criticism made by the mother of Miss Woodall, she, it was said on behalf of the mother, should continue in her work, but then the guardian would consider whether she was an appropriate person to carry on with the prospect that another expert might be instructed. So what mum's saying is, let Miss Woodall carry on for the time being, appoint a guardian, let the guardian say whether this psychologist should continue, bearing in mind she's been doing it for over a year and a half, and then let's come back and see what should happen. The judge says... I cannot conceive of course of action which would be more likely to further harm and damage these children and undermine the progress that they have made so far, which albeit small steps is impressive given the depth of the damage and harm that they have suffered. It was pressed upon me that it was unprincipled not to obtain the wishes and feelings of the children. I recognized then in November that is in number one, and I do now that the children would probably say they want to see their mother or they would want to resume the 50-50 shared care package. However, the fact of the matter is that because of the harm and damage that they have suffered, these views do not reflect the true wishes and feelings of the children. As Lord Justice Peter Jackson acknowledged in dismissing the application for permission to appeal, the wishes and feelings of the children, given the damage they have suffered, are unascertainable, and that remains the case. I am satisfied and find to date that these are unacceptable applications. So essentially, what Keane is saying is, look, the time for getting independent, neutral wishes and feelings of the children is past because they are so heavily damaged by what mum has done to them that their wishes and feelings are essentially meaningless. They could say anything because they have been so damaged psychologically. So the time for appointing a guardian, whilst it can be a helpful tool in the kind of early stages of these cases or the early stages of potential emotional harm, in this case, it's essentially useless. The guardian's going to say, well, the children say this, but of course we can't trust a word they say because of what we know the mother has done to them. So why bother even asking? Furthermore, what Kian identifies, which I think is really smart, is he says, I entirely accept and understand the expert opinion of Ms. Woodall, but were the children to be asked what their wishes and feelings are at this time in the midst of the delicate therapeutic work they're undertaking, it would be harmful and detrimental to their welfare. And in these circumstances, I could not countenance that being done. So he's saying essentially the asking of them at this stage when they're already being told what they need to do by the professionals and by their parents would be catastrophic because they'd once again be able to regain control and once again be drawn into this idea of should I be siding with mum or siding with dad and it would cause them significant harm and I think that's a really really clever point that if you take away one thing from this it should be that that sometimes asking children what they want is more damaging um, if especially if you know what they're going to say I think that's that's really important. Kean's not done with his criticism of the mum. He goes on to say, I remain gravely concerned about the role taken by the mother in these proceedings. It was submitted that having confidence in Miss Woodall, I could leave the task of future contact to her by the father, and I acknowledge the potential advantages that have been identified by the father. However, it is no adverse reflection of Miss Woodall at all, or of my confidence in her and her work, 
that I consider that at this stage in proceedings, it would be an abdication of my duty to make welfare decisions about these children were I to conclude the proceedings today. So what dad's saying is, let Miss Woodle and I get on with it. We know what we're doing. You've set out your roadmap in November. Can we get on with it? Kean saying, actually, no, I'm so worried about mum's behaviour in this case that I don't think I can finish this case yet. And we know he doesn't because there's three and four. At that hearing in February, mum's barrister cross-examines Miss Woodle at length about various different aspects of the report that she's published since the November case. So she gives oral evidence and she says in that oral evidence that with work proceeding well, the court could be in a position before Easter, that is late March, to make a decision as to whether the route map previously identified in November could be approved and put in place. Kean says, I very much hope that that hearing will take place. He wants to approve the route map and he wants things to move forward. But at this stage, mother's litigation conduct and the fact that she's making all these applications and pushing all of this stuff is very damaging and upsetting for the children. He then talks about Marlebone, which I think is important because I did mention it earlier. He says, having initially travelled to Russia after the decision to be with her family, the mother had recently returned to her flat in Marlebone, which is but a few minutes away from the father's home. It was suggested at the beginning of this hearing that the mother had moved there before the father. That is true. However, the mother moved there in the knowledge that that is where the father and his wife intended to move. And the mother moved to Marlebone, notwithstanding the father sending her a communication imploring her to reconsider before moving to Marlebone, because, as she well knew, that is where the father and his wife were going to move. The pressure that that now puts on the whole family, particularly the children, has restricted their liberty and freedom to leave the family home. Because, of course, there is an ever-present risk that the children will bump into their mother, wholly unprepared and probably wholly unready for a meeting with her. And as an aside, I want to say that I imagine that's exactly why the move was made by the mother. I love the reference to, was it mother wanting to join the same gym as her father's partner? Yeah. Right. Yeah. She wants to join the same gym as the father's wife. And she doesn't understand why she can't, doesn't understand why that would be a problem. Despite the fact that this woman, Mrs. A, the father's husband, is going to great lengths therapeutically and psychologically to support these children following what's happened. Kean says it would be some indication of the mother's understanding of the circumstances of the children if she would take immediate steps to move out and move away from her property in Marlebone. Also, this is so family court. He says, whether to Chelsea or anywhere else, because Chelsea is the obvious choice. I am satisfied that the father, working in such a dedicated way as he has to help his children, has been under enormous pressure and anything that can relieve that pressure on him and enable the children to move about their local community more freely is obviously to the inestimable benefit of the children and would be in their welfare interests. So to sum up, what number two says is transition went really badly. Children initially kept running away from dad. After a lot of work with Miss Woodle and their father, having not seen their mother for two months following November, things are going better. Children are more settled. We're getting to where we need to go. But the court's not ready to finish yet because it wants a bit more time to think about how to handle this situation. And that is where number two ends. And uh, you take the baton for number three and four. I was quite enjoying what I was doing so far, which was absolutely nothing. I thought you could take the lead on this podcast because I'm exhausted. But number three and number four are shorter. So I do think that you took the bulk of the work here, which I'm happy with. Judgment number three was handed down in March 2021. So just over six months ago. And it's a judgment that deals with costs. So I actually think it sounds really dry costs, but it's actually a really interesting costs judgment. We haven't dealt with costs at all, I think, in this podcast so far, or, or only fleetingly, um, Maddie. And costs in children proceedings, as practitioners will know, and I say children proceedings, which are distinct from financial remedy proceedings. So 
the division of assets after separation or after the end of a marriage or a civil partnership or so on. So in children proceedings, costs are exceedingly rare. And there are a couple of different reasons for that. The court generally takes the view that making a costs order against a parent is taking money away from a pot that could be better directed towards the children. The court also doesn't want to create a winner-loser dynamic. And Maddie and I have spoken about that before on this podcast about how family law is not about winning or losing. Largely, it's about coming up with an outcome that everyone can live with. They're not probably terribly happy with it, but it's something that they can tolerate. So by slapping a costs order on one party, you are creating that winner-loser dynamic, and that's not what children proceedings are about. And of course, it's also not conducive to the parents having a healthy, functioning, co-parenting relationship moving forward if one of them has been slapped with a costs order right at the very beginning of that journey forward. So Mr Justice Keen, in judgment number three, goes through the various authorities in respect of costs, which is a really useful judgment to have in your pocket if practitioners are looking for a sort of cliff note summary of all the relevant authorities if they're instructed to make a costs application. And the question for the court ultimately in deciding whether or not to award costs is whether the conduct of the mum before and during the proceedings and or the manner in which she has pursued and defended the proceedings has been reprehensible or unreasonable. So that's the test that the court is considering here. And Mr. Justice Keen breaks his assessment down into three periods, effectively. So the period from mother's application to vary the terms of the shared care order until the 12th of June 2019. So from the end of 2018 until June 2019, that's period one. Then the second period is from June 2019 until what should have been the final hearing in November 2020. And then the hearings that took place in January and February 2021 when everything went pitong in November 2020 and nothing went the way it was planned. So in terms of the period from June 2019 to November 2020, so this is when the family was doing the very intensive work with Karen Woodall for the 15-month period, the judge did not think that there was reprehensible behaviour or an unreasonable stance by the mother in the conduct of litigation. By and large, within her abilities, whatever she was capable of doing, she engaged with the work that was required of her by Dr. Breyer and Miss Woodall. Albeit, of course, the problem was that the extent to which she could successfully engage was questionable. But the judge did make a costs order for the earlier period. So from the making of the application to vary the terms of the shared care order until June 2019, when the experts were instructed to do that work with them. And that was because during that time, as we said earlier, mother made very serious allegations of domestic abuse and abuse of the children against the father. She repeatedly said there should be a fact-finding hearing, which for non-family lawyers is a hearing where the court considers evidence from the parties about disputed allegations and then is tasked with finding out whether those allegations are true or not. So she repeatedly said he was abusive towards me, he was abusive towards the children, we need a fact-finding hearing so I can prove that these allegations are true. At the final hearing, or the, the planned final hearing in November 2020, as I said, she then accepted that all the previous allegations were made up. And as Maddie said, she said words and events just came into her head and she put them into witness statements was what she told the court. So because of that, the judge was satisfied that during that period, mother made allegations she knew were made up 
sought to prove them at a fact-finding hearing, and that amounted to reprehensible behaviour and was a wholly unreasonable stance for her to have adopted in the litigation. So then the period post-November 2020, so a transfer of residence has been directed, things start to go very, very wrong, and then hearings are listed in January and February 2021. Now, the judge was fair to Mother. He didn't think the hearing in January 2021 was unnecessary, given that issues arose almost immediately after these children were directed to go and live with their dad. So it was inevitable that a hearing was needed to sort things out, to deal with matters moving forward. And the judge didn't think it was unreasonable for Mother to ask for that listing to remain or that a cost order should be slapped on her as a result. But... He wasn't quite so kind about the hearing in February, which, as Maddie has already set out, at that hearing, Mother launched into, quote, a full-scale attack on the expertise and objectivity of Miss Woodall. The judge absolutely wasn't having any of that. The judge, as Maddie's already said, was also unimpressed by the application by Mother to join the children as parties and to appoint a children's guardian. Rightly so. We are how many months, years into these proceedings, it's been an extraordinarily long time for mother to suddenly go, you know what, what we really need is a children's guardian. So what the judge says is, I'm persuaded that one, the pursuit of the opportunity to cross-examine Miss Woodall, two, the attempt to undermine her professional integrity and objectivity, and three, the application to join the children as parties was wholly unreasonable and a totally ill-judged litigation tactic on the part of the mother. These actions were so egregious as to merit, indeed require me to exercise my discretion to make a costs order against the mother in respect of the costs incurred by the father in relation to that hearing. Now, mother, fair play to her, tried to argue that she didn't have the funds to pay all or any part of the father's costs. Again, judge wasn't having any of that because mother, as you've already alluded to, this family is a very wealthy family and mother received in excess of £2 million from the financial remedies proceedings. She also had investments, assets, a luxury flat in Moscow. She obviously had her place in, in Marylebone where she was paying £4,800 a month in rent. And she has a wealthy family and she was represented by solicitors and counsel throughout, um, solicitors and silks, I should say. So that's the end of judgment number three, with the judge reading the riot act effectively to mother and her having to bear a, a portion of the father's costs as part of these proceedings. And then we arrive at judgment number four, which is from July 2021 and is the official final, final hearing. I just want to say, because I, I am fascinated by the money of it all of this case, because it's very clear from one, two and three how much money these parents have. Both of them are represented by leading counsel throughout. The final hearing, it doesn't say how long it was, but I imagine it was very long. A huge amount of therapeutic work is done. 15 months of private psychological work is not cheap. And it really bothers me because if this family had been of less wealthy means, less extravagant means, if they had been of modest means, even if they were sort of middle class, then I don't think the outcome of this case would have been anywhere near possible because the parents had to fund all of this therapy, psychological work, expert reports, two psychiatrists, one psychologist who was ongoing work, as I say, for nearly two years by the time this matter finished. That is hugely expensive. 
it is very important that we highlight at this stage that if this was a different family with different means, this outcome would have been impossible. The level of psychological therapy that was required was impossible. The court don't pay for it. The parties pay for it. And there are sadly many cases of parental alienation where that outcome is simply not possible. It's not within the party's means to do that, despite the fact that the children require very significant psychological and emotional support. It may be, there may be cases where this comes into a care remit and the local authority pay for it. Sometimes that happens, therapeutic placements and things like that. But that often doesn't involve work with the parents. It often just involves work with the children. So I think it's, I just really want to highlight at this stage that we both know and understand that the outcome of this case is not going to be possible for everyone and is not going to be possible for a majority of cases that the family court sees. The fact that this family had so much money, like you see in ultra high net worth divorce cases and all sorts, means that the outcomes for them are different. They are different to people who don't have that level of income. I just think it's important to say that. Yeah, I mean, we're completely aware that there is a two-tier justice system. And we see that in, in lots of respects. For instance, families who are able to pay for private FDR judges to deal with their financial matters because the listings are so clogged up in courts that it could take months and months and months otherwise to get a financial dispute resolution hearing. The families who are able to pay for private children arbitration because they don't want to wait many months to get a final hearing in the normal court process. So this is nothing new, but the consequences are so profound for this family. And if it had been, as Maddie said, a a family who had, you know, even a fraction of these resources, they wouldn't have been able to counter the emotional damage that these children were suffering to the same extent. So that is very sad because legal aid ain't paying for this. It, It ain't. Right, so we're on judgment number four, final hearing in July 2021. When I say final hearing, this is the actual final hearing. Everyone agreed that this should be the final hearing. And the main issue was how contact should progress with the mother and the children moving forward. By this stage, the judge says that since November 2020 to July 2021, the children have made lots of progress. So they are now integrated into the care of their father and his wife, Miss A. They have a relationship with their father. But what the judge is really worried about is there's this risk of splitting, the term that Maddie referred to earlier. Again, if mother's influence was allowed to infiltrate this situation. The parents at this hearing didn't give evidence. The only person who gave evidence was Karen Woodall. Maddie, he referring to her as a psychologist. I believe she's a psychotherapist. Just oh, apologies. Being a pedant there. She runs a family separation clinic, I believe. So she's a psychotherapist. Still, I'm sure whatever work she was offering would have been extremely expensive and would have taken a real toll on this family's resources. But Karen Woodall was the expert giving evidence at this particular hearing. And she told the court that mother just hadn't changed at all since the transfer of residence judgment in November 2020. Now, lawyers will know that the ideal, whenever you have a judgment as damning as the one that this mother received in November 2020, the best way to move forward is to absorb the findings of the court and the observations of the court and to try and reassure the court, to try and overcome those obstacles that have been identified. That is the exact opposite of what this mother did. She just did not accept that she caused the children harm by alienating them. And she didn't engage with Karen Woodall at all in the therapeutic work that she was trying to do with her. If in fact, things had just gotten worse rather than better as far as mother was concerned. 
So as a result, Miss Woodall put before the court a rather restrictive contact roadmap. And we don't know the detail of this roadmap, but we know that it includes supervised direct and indirect contact via Zoom for, and there's reference to chunks of three or four hours from time to time. So very, very restrictive considering that these children were in the mother's primary care or, or at least shared care for an extremely long period of time. The judge accepted Karen Woodall's recommendations, made a child arrangements order in favor of father and on father's request, his wife. And the judge said the following, the mother has simply not moved on. As I've mentioned already, but it's worth repeating, she does not accept my judgment of November, 2020. She does not accept she's caused any harm to the children. She operates by being enmeshed with the children and their feelings. She cannot separate out her feelings and her wishes from the children's feelings and the children's wishes. She has demonstrated repeatedly that she is unable to advance further in her thinking and in her feelings. And she has, as I accept and as advised by Ms. Woodall, reached a ceiling beyond which she cannot move. And because of that, she poses a serious risk of harm, emotional and psychological harm to both child A and to child B. It is in those circumstances I'm satisfied that it would be wholly contrary to the welfare best interests of either child for there to be more extensive contact than that proposed and set out by Ms. Woodall in her report. If the mother should move on, if she does accept the judgment, if she does accept her adverse role in the children's lives up to and including November 2020, then it may well be in the welfare best interests of the children for her to, for her to contact to be less restrictive and to be increased. As matters stand, I have no confidence that the mother would be able to achieve that. And I have no confidence that it will in fact prove appropriate in the future for the mother to have wider and longer contact with the children. Bleak, really, really bleak outcome for the mother and entirely a situation of her own making. Do you have any observations off the back of judgments? One, two, three, four, Maddie. I do. I think, I think the reason that I wanted to talk about these cases is not necessarily, as I say, because they are every man cases who apply, who, whose broader principles apply. I think it's about, for me, what is important is about alienation. And I've written about this once or twice, I think, is what can the court do? You, you go to, to courts for remedies to problems. That's what courts are for. They resolve disputes. They give people remedies. Parental alienation, for want of a better term, is one of the most difficult problems ever because it involves significant emotional, psychological, social harm. You know, physical harm, we know how to deal with that. We know what the answer is. If someone hurts a child, you take the child away from the person who hurt them and you educate the person about not hurting children again physically. For this kind of harm, it's so difficult to find a solution for it because they're children who love their parents and their parents love them. And it's so, you know, I, I just find it impossible to explain how tricky these cases are because they're so wrapped up in the emotion and psychological profile of the children and of the parents the dynamics and the psychological flavor of the family is is so difficult so I'm very interested in in to, when talking about these cases what can the court what tools can the court use what does it have at its disposal to solve this problem and for me I think this is a really good example of the extent and level to which psychotherapy can assist it's obviously a psychological problem. It has to have a psychological answer. 
I also think that Dr. Butler's report about mum's psychological profile was pivotal in this case, about the fact that it's not that this woman isn't trying or even necessarily doing the best she can. She's simply incapable psychologically of getting to a place where she can reflect properly and, and change her behaviour. And that may sound harsh, but those are the boundaries that we use in care proceedings when we say these are parents who are simply unable to change or stop using drugs or stop drinking or whatever within the specific time periods. And that's seen as much less controversial. So I think it's important that we look at this in a way where you can see what the court is saying. The court is saying, look, this mother's maybe trying her best. I don't think she necessarily was, but she may be trying her best to help these children be with their father. She simply can't do it in the same way that many mothers and fathers in care proceedings are trying their best to care for these babies or these children. They simply can't do it. And sometimes people just can't. And this is a case where this mother just can't. And I think that's really, that assessment, I think, was really helpful. I think it, it really made me understand this case a lot better once I'd read what Dr. Butler had said about this mother's psychological profile. The difficulty with alienation is, and this is the reaction I had when I wrote about it, is that people don't believe experts. People say, well, what do experts know? Experts are biased and they don't understand the realities. And actually, this is a woman who's got no issues at all and she's perfectly capable of caring for these children and I think that's why it becomes this emotive issue because rather than there being a cut and dry injury or a cut and dry case of neglect or whatever schooling or substance abuse something that people can understand people will say well what if the expert's wrong the impact on the children is so grave that if this expert's wrong what can we do about it and that's where it becomes a real quagmire of trying to find the answer and for me I think the only thing we can do is look at what the court thought do we have any reason to doubt the judge's conclusions in this case from the evidence that, that he sets out? I don't think there is, no. I think that the judge reached a really good point. I was not there. I haven't heard all the evidence, but from what the judgments say, I have complete faith that this is the right decision for this family. And I think at a certain point, you have to abdicate responsibility to the process. You have to say, this is a family who's in crisis. They're coming to the court for a reason. You have to let the court make the decision because you can doubt it till the cows come home. You can say, well, what if the judge is wrong? What if the experts are wrong? What if the parents are wrong? What if the children are wrong? But you have to give the final determination to someone. And I think in a case like this, it really does show the importance of courts taking holistic family decisions and taking decisions, grasping decisions that are very, very difficult. I think it's a case that is profound in its radicalness almost of, of grasping the nettle and finding solutions for families, because that's exactly what Ian does is he finds a solution and it works you know it's going well which is a miracle really yeah and we're not saying that experts are infallible by any stretch of the imagination but clearly Miss Woodall was subject to extensive cross-examination as part of these proceedings clearly her conclusions her observations would have been interrogated by those representing the mother and by the court and ultimately the court arrived at the conclusion that that expert evidence stands um, now, I'm very interested in expert witnesses in the family courts, and I've written about it a great deal. And, and what strikes me is that the working group on the shortage of, of medical experts in the family courts were looking at reasons why people might be unwilling to come forward to be expert witnesses. And one of the issues that have been raised by both lawyers and by people who could be experts is a fear of public criticism by the courts, a fear of aggressive cross-examination, of effectively, you know, being hauled over the coals and then having an adverse judgment published. What I think is interesting in this case is this is a blazing defense by Mr. Justice Kean of Karen Woodall. And I do think it offers some reassurance to experts moving forward that if you have worked hard and if your work is beyond reproach, 
the court will shield you from unjustifiable criticism. And obviously, the other side of the coin is if you fall short, and if what you've been instructed to do has been very poor, then the court will haul you over the coals. But I think it was very important that the judge not only made that very clear at the hearing in February 2021, that there was no principal basis upon which mother could lambast her professional integrity in the way that she did, but he also slapped a cost order on her for even adopting that litigation tactic. And I think that that is, that is something that will offer a lot of reassurance to expert witnesses moving forward who invest so much time in these cases and so much work and emotional labour only to be everyone's punching bag at the end. I think the costs thing I do find it interesting because, you know, spoiler alert, you don't become a children lawyer because you enjoy talking about costs. You know, there's only a handful of cases that I've ever had battles about costs with that involve children. Family law act is slightly different and obviously financial remedies totally different. But children cases, you very rarely are successful with costs. And I think that is a very, very good rule because I think in the same way with fact findings, you know, sometimes people have fact findings about things that are not substantively relevant and all that's doing is pushing these parties further and further apart, further into the quagmire of conflict, entrenching their positions more and more. That's not right for everyone, but sometimes it, it, it's true. And the same is for costs. You know, you've got to be careful when you apply for them, how you apply for them and what you do. And I think that the very smart thing that dad's lawyers did in this case is they waited for number one, they read number one, and they said, well, actually, the judge made some comments in this case about when mum did things that weren't right and when mum litigated things that she shouldn't have litigated and the fact that mum admitted that all of this was a lie. And then they went back and said, actually, we'd like our costs now. And I think that was a very good way of doing it because I think had they gone in hard in November and said, I want my costs now, the judge would have said, no way, we've got, we've got to test the waters. I'm not getting involved in this now. The way that it was litigated on behalf of the father was, was very smart. And obviously that's because they were represented by leading brilliant counsels, I imagine, and very, very experienced solicitors. But it's a lesson in cost. I think that that judgment is really it's helpful and I like it. But the rest of it is sad, and distressing and unfortunate. Right. I think we have spent an extraordinarily long time on those four judgments. So I'm going to move us on to our next usual segment, book, talk, podcast recommendations. Maddie, hit me. So I have just come back from my holiday and on my holiday, I did my annual reading for the year because then I stopped reading books until the next time I'm on a sun lounger. But I read Three Women by Lisa Tadeo. Have you read it? I have read it. I also got obsessed with, obviously, one of the three women is is based on a true story. I think two, I think all of them are based on a true story, but one of them is identifiable. Yeah. We have an alleged relationship with her teacher. And that is an actual trial that I was constantly obsessively YouTubing um, what was going on there. It's beautifully written um, and each woman is depicted in such a different way. But sorry, Maddie, I'm interrupting you. Tell us what Three Women is about. Yes, so you're right. It's actually a work of non-fiction. It's written like a novel, which is so clever because I read My Dark Vanessa before it actually, which is same premise, much, very horrible book. I can't recommend it. It's horrible. But I read that before. I, I really, really liked My Dark Vanessa, but it is a difficult read. Yeah, it is very difficult. Bit of a busman's holiday as well. But anyway, I read that before and that was that's obviously a novel. And then this read like a novel. It's written gorgeously. The language is lovely. And the way it's presented is very escapism and just you really lose yourself in the stories of these women. But the premise of it is it's three women, shock, one of whom, as you say, is, is identifiable. She's called Maggie and she had a alleged inappropriate relationship with her teacher when she was at school. And then there's two other women, Sloane and Lena, who are 
engaged in various different aspects of their lives. And the premise of the book, the piece of work, is that it's about female desire and female sexuality and female relationships. And I think that's something that I very invested in. I think I've talked before about Emily Najowski, who is a sex therapist, whose TED talk I recommended in season one, I think. And I think that if you're interested in relationships and families, you have to be interested in sexual relationships as well and desire and the nature of romantic relationships. I think it's an important part of that, not in a weird way, but in a sort of transparent and open and honest way. And if you are someone who is listening to this podcast, who is obsessed with relationships and family dynamics and children and all of that and marriage, then family law is absolutely the right thing for you because that's exactly what we do. And I think reading a book like that, because it's nonfiction, it gives you so much insight into the nature of relationships and the nature of family dynamics. I think it's a good way for people who do or don't practice family law to really get an understanding of the female perspective on relationships. And I thought it was just so well done and it really is very insightful and very reflective on the nature of relationships and desire and you know sexual, but also romantic and platonic relationships as well. So it's fab and I loved it. And as a more law-based one, I did just want to say that Lady Hale did Desert, Desert Island Discs a couple of weeks ago. As you know, it's my lifelong ambition to film Desert Island Discs. And Lady Hale was on it. I thought she'd been on it before, but it's the first time they'd had her, which I thought was a bit late to the party. But she was really fab and she talked a lot about women in law and how to how she survived as a barrister in the 60s at the bar. So, yes, it's it's very interesting and I'd recommend it if any Lady Hale fans are listening. What about you? I am reading at the moment The State of It by Chris Wilde, Stories from the Frontline of a Broken Care System. Have you heard of it? No. So I, I'm reading it at the moment. It is heartbreaking and it is infuriating. And it is from the point of view of a care home manager. And I believe he's a care experienced person as well. And some of the chapters are absolutely brutal to read. I had to actually pause and compose myself before I could carry on reading. It covers everything from the realities of the care system that we've talked about. We've talked about this before. The care system's horrible. It's awful. We forget about that, acting for local authorities, making applications to remove children into care, just what the realities of the care system are. It's a system where there is an imbalance of power between authorities and the children that often makes children and young people extremely vulnerable to horrific abuse, which is something that the book opens with at the outset. It talks about all sorts of things, such as how support for children who have been in care once they reach 16, it just drops off a cliff and completely leaves them in the lurch. He completely, Chris Wilde, completely eviscerates both the public and the private sectors. And he talks about how he himself, when he was working in the private sector, found himself prioritizing profit over people. And the brink, of, he was very, very close to the brink of enormous crises that could have been so much worse because he found himself prioritizing profit over people. It's also written really recently, the latter half of the book looks at the impact of coronavirus on the care system. Uh, and Maddie, you will remember because you wrote an article about this at Family Law Week last year, which is the coronavirus regulations, what are they called? The Children and Adoption Coronavirus Amendment Regulations. Regulations 2020, yeah. That. So he talks about that, and I'm going to read this bit out to you because obviously it's something that resonates with you. You raised exactly these concerns when you wrote that article in April last year. The changes affected everything, from social worker visits and six-monthly reviews to adoption and children's placements outside their home areas. Everything was stopped, without any professional or public consultation and with no time for parliamentary scrutiny or debate. 
changes that would ultimately cut off the country's most vulnerable young people from the fraying threads of support the system offered were made law without asking anyone with any relevant experience what the impact might be and if there was a better way to do it. What made it even worse was that unlike other legal changes made because of COVID-19, this particular legislation hadn't been drafted in response to the crisis. It was a set of changes that the Conservatives had tried and failed to push through four years earlier. Back then, they proposed it as a change to allow local authorities to opt out of children's social care duties for up to six years as a trial for removing those duties altogether. They'd faced such strong opposition that they'd had to backtrack. But now here they were pushing it through under the guise of helping local authorities deal with the pandemic, just like they were ditching tender processes to give jobs and millions of pounds to their mates. Even in a global crisis, the rich and powerful were looking after their own interests. Fuck what happens to the poor and unfortunate. So that's the state of it, which I really think is up your street politically and literature wise. Yeah, um, I can't explain. Blame to you how angry those regulations made me. I was fuming. I did a panel, I think, with Charlotte Hughes, friend of the show, a couple of months after, and it was, I think I was quite literally shouting at a room of students who wanted to be family lawyers about how angry I was about this. And she was like, you need to calm down. And I was like, I simply can't. Like, I'm so angry. It's, yeah, I don't doubt that that book, that book is probably going to take me a while to read because I will probably want to kill someone while I'm reading it. And my second recommendation is about me. My recommendation is my podcast, the podcast that I did. So there you go. It's a podcast that I did with, how do you pronounce it? Themis? Themis? Themis, I think. Themis, yeah. It's the Intersectional Women Barristers Alliance. And I was their Shiro of September, Maddie. Like, I don't want to boast, but like I'm, I'm probably boasting. I was the Shiro. Huge, Huge name. So lucky to have you on this podcast. Thank you so much for coming. <laughs> and Themis interviewed me and it's supposed to be like you know those Vogue 73 question things that they have on YouTube it so wasn't because that's supposed to you're supposed to give really short glib answers to it and I was just rambling after every single question but I talked about everything from why the bar needs intersectional feminism to how obsessed I am with you in a totally non-creepy very healthy way to what the biggest challenges are facing the family bar and the bar more widely so do check it out it's on Spotify and on YouTube and it'll be in the show notes obviously and you're obliged to listen to it because you are a listener of this podcast I did listen to it I've already listened to it I loved it I thought you were fab and I also think if anyone's particularly interested in slightly more personal things about Malvika not me you won't get that from me but about Malvika then it's a good one to listen to it kind of fleshes out our uh, shared political and principles in relation to the family bar and the bar in general so I would listen to it it's fab okay if you've made it this far, I'm impressed. But um, closing segment, tweet of the week. I am going to go first because I know that yours is slightly more lighthearted than mine. So mine, and I don't want to invite a huge amount of discussion because I think we're probably just going to, we're literally losing listeners. I can hear us losing listeners. But mine is from Oliver Lewis, at Dr. Oliver Lewis, who tweeted on the 21st of September, a psychiatrist has written a report that says, quote, risk assessment is an inexact activity and there is, sadly, little evidence to show that risk assessment improves the prediction of adverse outcomes, unquote, views. And I had to read that tweet about seven times to understand what that psychiatrist was saying. And I think this is something I've touched on, I don't know, in the podcast, but on my Twitter occasionally, about how we use phrases in the family bar 
at the family bar and in family law, like risk assessment and like adverse outcomes and adverse childhood experiences and all of these things, to mean very, very different things and very broad kind of generalised things. And I think that that opinion from a psychiatrist is not only very candid, but is also quite indicative of the way that we can sometimes get very lazy about language. And it's something that my mum talks about a lot, people's laziness with language. And I think it's something that, that we could all reflect on is when we say risk assessment, what do we mean? And when we say adverse experience or this will have an impact or significant harm, what do we mean? It's time for people, I think, to start being much more particular, much more substantive in the words that they use, because it's very easy to have a whole hearing of kind of fluffy language that we've heard a million times before that sounds like you're saying something, but you're not actually saying anything. And so I would implore anyone who has a career in advocacy to have a think next time you're using these phrases. What do we mean when we say that? What does that mean? Because you say it and then you think, actually, what did I mean by that? Time to be careful, not to be lazy with language. What do you think? Yeah, I picked up a slightly different aspect of this when you sent this to me. Risk assessment is an inexact activity. I think that as lawyers, we really want precision and we want exact outcomes and we want an answer. We've posed the questions. We want to know what the answer is so that we don't have to work it out ourselves. And we don't like the idea that the problem is so complex and nuanced that there may not be a right answer. And a lot of it is just going to be trial and error. And unfortunately, we're just going to have to see how it goes. I think sometimes we see risk assessment as some sort of panacea for everything and that we think that they will give us some sort of percentage answer of exactly how much risk is, is posed by this particular individual or by this particular scenario. That's just not how life works. I think that so much of family law is inexact. So much of family law is, let's just see how it goes. Just as we saw in the parental alienation judgment, you know, we had that judgment in November and then we just had to see how it goes after the judge transferred residence. We had no idea how things would pan out. And I think that we just have to accept that as part of our jobs, we are not always going to get the precise answers that we want. And there is a lot of faith involved in it. Yeah, I completely agree. I agree with you that that, that is obviously the literal reading of the tweet. But I think that's that's what I mean when I say when we say risk assessment, what we're asking for is, you know, are you telling me that there's a 60 percent chance this is going to happen? Of course, that's not what the risk assessment is doing. So we need to be much clearer about what we actually want and whether we can achieve that. You know, as you say, we, we might not get anywhere. We might just have to, you know, suck it and see, basically. And I think that is it's worth being more candid about that because we're dealing with families and parents and children. So I would implore that to be reflected on. What is yours? Mine isn't a tweet. Mine's an account. And it is at Law Poor Calendar. It's the Legal Pets Charity Calendar, brackets billable hour. And for 12 days, I think we're now on day three, this Twitter account is going to be pitting the best of the legal pet world against each other, which is slightly cutthroat and hunger gamesy. But we have to vote every single day. I don't even know how to pick between these extraordinarily adorable pets. I've seen rabbits, I've seen dogs, I've seen cats, I've seen a snake. I've entered my, my own cat. She was Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Get it. I got her a rough, I got her glasses, everything. And I, I put a lot of effort into it. She will be put up on the podium at some point to be voted on. And I very much expect our listeners to vote for Bella, the black cat. But if you want a little bit of lighthearted legal fluff, go on the Legal Pets charity calendar, Twitter account, and every day you will be bombarded 
with photos of adorable animals. What else could you possibly want? I agree. That, that's so nice. I'm going to start following right now. Finally, on a, on a less lighthearted and, and far more serious note, we did want to raise, of course, the murders of Sabina Nessa and Sarah Everard. Um, I know that many of us have been closely following the sentencing hearing of Sarah Everard's killer, who we won't name, and the sentencing remarks were horrible to read, really, really deeply troubling to know exactly what Sarah went through in her last hours. And we know that everyone's going to be feeling extremely angry. Women are going to be feeling extremely angry reading about these cases day in day out because Sabina, Nessa and Sarah Everard are obviously just two women amongst hundreds, amongst thousands who have been the victims of male violence. So we want to try and turn some of that anger into something tangible, something useful that will make us feel a little less helpless. So we're going to be putting a link to Southall Black Sisters in the show notes and you can of course donate to them. They are a fantastic charity who do a lot of work with women who have been the subject of male violence so please do donate if you can yeah I would entirely endorse that I think it's not been a fun week to be a woman last week or really anyone who identifies with women it's been incredibly hard and our, our thoughts are as ever with the families of Sarah Everard and Sabina Nessa it's it must have been awful to hear all of that last week until then we will see you in episode two in a fortnight thank you so much for joining us thank you bye